Let's go in our Bibles this morning, if you would, to the book of Acts, chapter 14, once again. Acts, chapter 14, and we'll find our place there in verse number 8. Acts, chapter 14, and verse number 8. Have you ever noticed how much confusion exists around the subject of religion, and particularly around the question of how does a person have a real relationship with God. It is incredible to me the variety of answers that you could receive from people as you talk to them about what it means to be right with God, how to know that you're saved, how to know that you have a home in heaven, and how to have a relationship with God in a personal way. Confusion. Confusion is probably the best word to describe what we encounter when we ask questions about this subject. You're liable to hear all kinds of things. Yesterday, we were involved in some street evangelism, and one man in particular that we were talking with, as we began to ask him spiritual questions, he answered the questions on a wide range For instance, he went from saying that he believed that perhaps aliens had made the world rather than God to saying that he had decided he didn't believe in aliens at all. He went from saying that the Bible was perhaps only partly trustworthy to in the same conversation saying that he loved to read the Bible and it was a wonderful book which revealed truth. The long and short of it was this man was so confused that he couldn't figure out what he believed. And in our conversation on a number of different topics, he went from wild swings of saying one thing to another thing with an emphatic emphasis as if he was very sure of what he was saying when it was clear that he was not sure of anything at all. Now, this is not some kind of a strange experience in speaking with people about spiritual things. To the contrary, this seems to be very typical, that many people exist in a state of spiritual confusion. Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 18, describes a very similar situation of spiritual confusion. The Bible says here, there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb who never had walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. And when the people saw what Paul had done, They lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lyconia, The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people. Which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you 
that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, scarce restrained they the people that they had not done sacrifice unto them. Spiritual confusion. Now, yesterday, the norm of the conversations that we had with people could be described as spiritual confusion. Another man that I was speaking with, as I handed him a gospel tract, he looked at me with a little bit of concern about what I was handing, but I explained to him that it was a gospel tract, and he smiled and took it in his hand, and he said, I love Jesus. And he kept walking, and then a little ways down the sidewalk, he turned around and over his shoulder, he said, I love Jesus. I just don't like when people only talk about worshiping him in their particular way. I think that as long as you're sincere and you're worshiping God, that God will accept you. And I just don't like when people are very particular about their point of view. And then he turned around and kept walking. I love Jesus, except for the part where he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I love Jesus, the one that I made up in my own mind. Spiritual confusion. Now, spiritual confusion is not a new thing. We may have a tendency to think that it's especially prevalent in our day and age. And in fact, many people are quite confused about what is the truth. But this is not a new condition. The reality is the enemy of men's souls loves to sow confusion about the truth, to distract and deter from the power of the gospel Here in Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 18, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, though they were clearly communicating the gospel, experienced an environment of extreme spiritual confusion. Some thoughts about this this morning that I want to talk with you about. First of all, I want you to notice in this passage, there is power in God's truth. Aren't you thankful for the power of that is in God's truth. The, the, the scriptures are described to us as the sword of the spirit. God says that his word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide asunder between the soul and the spirit. The word of God is very powerful. And, and Paul is described here in this passage as coming into the city of Lystra with Barnabas. And they're going to preach the gospel here in this place. In verses 8 through 10, we find that they encounter a man who had a tremendous need. The Bible describes him in verse 8 as being impotent in his feet. And that means that he was paralyzed in his lower extremities. He, he had no strength or power in his feet, so he couldn't walk. And that's exactly what the verse goes on to talk about. It says that he was a cripple from his mother's womb and he never had walked. So perhaps something had happened when he was born. Perhaps uh, before he was born, the way that his body was shaped in his mother's womb, we're not exactly sure how all of this came to be. We just know that when this man was born, when he was a little boy, he didn't run around like other little boys. He didn't 
play the games that the other little boys in his town played because he couldn't. He wasn't able to walk. He had never had strength in his legs or his feet to be able to get up and walk on his own. Of course, this was a different day and age. You didn't go to the doctor and find that they could do physical therapy or surgery to somehow fix this problem. It just was the way that it was. And this man, we don't know how old he was, but he had lived like this for a long time. The condition that is described of this man is a condition of tremendous need. Physically, this man was in a place where he needed something that he could not provide for himself. And and certainly, as we look around the world, as we interact with people in society all around us, we find people like this all over the place. Not just people with physical needs, but more importantly, people who have deep and nearly insurmountable spiritual needs. As they express where they are, as they express the burdens that they're bearing, the the struggles that they're encountering in their soul, you realize this person is incapable of helping themselves. In many cases, they've gone for help to all kinds of places and have not found the help that they have needed. Here's a man who is in great need. And then it goes on in verse 9 to say that this same man heard Paul speak. Now, we know the kind of things that Paul would have been speaking because it's recorded in the book of Acts in a number of places, the kind of messages that he would preach. For instance, we we have a good idea that Paul would have been preaching about the law. And we have a good idea that he would have been preaching about man's guilt before God. We, We have a good understanding that he was preaching about the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel message of what Jesus did on the cross and how he died and was buried and was raised again from the dead. And that message of the gospel, the good news, I mean, this was the theme of what Paul preached everywhere that he went. So when it says he heard Paul speak, we don't know exactly what Paul was saying, but we have a pretty good idea that he was preaching the gospel. This man was listening. In fact, the Bible seems to indicate that this man was hanging on every word. While others may have been confused, while others may not have been comprehending the truth, this was a man who seized on the truth. He was listening carefully to what Paul was saying. And as Paul was speaking, as Paul was preaching, the Bible says he was steadfastly beholding him. So, so Paul, as he's preaching, looks out in the audience and he sees this man who's a cripple and he looks at him and he sees that something is going on in his heart. I hate to break it to you, but your body, your eyes, your face tells me a lot about how the message is being received. You can't hide it. You can't really cover it over. Your body language speaks volumes Here's a man who is hanging on every word that Paul is saying. And Paul sees that God is at work in his heart. And he looks at this man. He stares at him. He's carefully analyzing how this man is responding. And he realizes this man has faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. He can see in this man's response, in his eyes, 
in his body language, in his posture. He can see this man is receiving the message that I'm preaching. He has faith. God is doing something in his life. And so as Paul saw that God was working in this man's life, he looked at this man and he called upon him to have faith in a very specific way. Now, I want to point out to you that not everyone in the crowd was receiving the message the same way this man was receiving it. The truth is, sometimes one person could be receiving the message and hearing what God has for them, and the person next to them is completely oblivious to what is going on. The message could be going in one ear and out the other ear. It's affecting them not at all. In fact, if you ask them five minutes after the message, what was going on in there? They would say, I have no idea. He said some stuff, but I couldn't for the life of me tell you what he had to say. Now, that's not the way we want to come to church. But this man was different. He was listening. He was impacted by the message. And Paul noticed that he had faith to be healed. And so Paul called out to him in verse 10, stand upright on thy feet, which is a strange thing to say to someone who has never walked. Unless you are very confident in the power of God, you don't say things like this. And I don't advise that any of you go around telling people who are lame to get up and walk, because that's not our business. But in this case, God had given Paul some power or some authority to be able to heal. Unlike what you or I may be able to do, Paul was able to visibly heal this man, and he sensed that this man had faith in God, so he directed to him a command to stand up and walk. And it must have taken tremendous faith for this man who had never walked, had no idea what the mechanics of walking were even like to actually do what Paul said. But the Bible says he leaped and he walked. He didn't just stand up. He was going for a dunk. He wanted to, he wanted to get some air time. He wanted to show everyone what God had done. Now, all of this, of course, Paul is saying these things with a loud voice. We'll point that out in just a moment. And this man is healed. There's something that's going on in his life. Obviously, this is drawing a great deal of attention because everybody in town is familiar with this man and his story. They know that he's never walked. Most of them would have known him for a long time. And when he stands up and he starts walking, this created a tremendous stir around the power of God. Now, I want you to notice the emphasis here. There is power in the word of God. God is able through his truth through his word, to do a tremendous work in people's lives. I hope that you have experienced that work in your own life. I hope that you have seen and experienced what it is for your life to be changed by God's grace and by God's truth. There is no doubt that there is power in God's truth. That much is easy to see in verses 8 through 10. But the second thing that we see in this passage is that in addition to there being power in God's truth, there is also much confusion about the source of power. So people have 
an incredible fascination with power. Power is something that attracts people. I mean, raw power. If people could buy the power to do miracles, you better believe that they would do it. Because they realize that if they have power to do miracles, they could benefit personally from that. They could use that for themselves. People are fascinated with the idea of power. That's why when people start talking about miracles or signs or something happening that's out of the ordinary, people are like, oh, I'd like to hear about that. How did that happen? How could a person get that kind of power? Now, understand that while there really is power in God's word, there is also a lot of confusion about the source of power. We see it here in verses 11 through 13. The confusion specifically centered around Paul and Barnabas. And all of these people who are around Paul and Barnabas, who are witnesses to this man getting up and starting to walk, begin to get all excited about what is happening, and they begin talking to each other. And evidently in their minds, this is a fulfillment of some kind of a prophecy of something that they believed in. And they start talking to each other in their local language, and they're saying, this is amazing, look, this man got up, the gods have come down to us. And right away they start saying, this one here, this one here, Barnabas, he's Jupiter. And this one over here, Paul, he's Mercurius because he's the chief speaker. He's the one who's doing all the talking. So they've got it all figured out. They've got Jupiter and Mercurius who've come to their town. And they're all excited about these gods who have come to their town. And they're talking back and forth. Now, I don't know if Paul and Barnabas spoke the local language or how long it took them to figure out what was going on. But I I want you just to go with me in my imagination a little bit because I'm imagining what this would be like. I'm preaching the gospel and God does a great work in someone's life. And this person gets up and they're all excited and it's obvious that God's power is real in their life. And then all of a sudden, everyone around them starts jabbering in a language that I don't understand. And they're very excited and, and they're, they're pumped up. And here's what I'm thinking. We're about to have a revival. We're going to have a lot of people saved. I mean, people are getting excited about the truth. This is wonderful. Only it's not wonderful. It's bad. It's really, really bad what is taking place. And then after a while, Paul and Barnabas seem to figure out what is going on. This is not good at all. We need to address this. Now, so I want you just to think with me for a minute about this spiritual confusion. Why does spiritual confusion come about in people's minds? Well, Understand with me that wrong assumptions can sometimes come into people's minds and hearts when God's power is shown. So people will hear about an answer to prayer, or they'll see something that God has done, or they'll hear about somebody who got saved. They'll be present in a service where God is at work. And our assumption from a biblical worldview is, Everybody is going to understand the truth. Everybody is going to know exactly what has happened and why it's happened. And they're going to be drawn to the truth of the word of God. And lots of people are going to respond. It's going to be great. Except that's not how it works. Because inevitably, there's going to be some people there 
who are going to have some wrong assumptions. Now, it's hard for us to understand because we would think if the truth has been proclaimed, the power of God has been shown, wouldn't everyone comprehend the message? Wouldn't they see that the the focal point is Jesus Christ, that they ought to believe the word of God, that they ought to come to the true God? Wouldn't that be the assumption that people would have? And yet we find that the enemy can take the declaration of truth and the demonstration of power and twist it in people's minds. And thus, he leads them to wrong conclusions. It's possible for someone to sit in a service right here in this church where the gospel is plainly preached. It's happened many times before. The gospel is plainly preached. And and as a preacher, I may have some knowledge of their background and where they're coming from, their story. I I may, for instance, know as as a matter of fact that they have no profession of faith no real testimony of salvation, they've never been born again, and then preach a message like that, and they'll come by the door and say, Pastor, what a great message. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. And I'm thinking, I wish you didn't enjoy it. I I wish that you would understand it. I I wish that that you would comprehend it. I I wish that you would be convicted about your need to be saved. But see, someone could sit in a service Someone else might be convicted about their sin and come forward and be saved, be dealt with about their need of salvation, call on the Lord. Someone else sitting right next to them comes to a completely different conclusion. The same message has been preached. So what is going on? Well, oftentimes, these assumptions that people have are based on wrong worldviews. A worldview is a lens of interpretation through which people look at the world. It's a lens of interpretation through which they look at things that are presented to them as facts. So we find, for instance, that the words that we used, that we use in presenting the gospel, may be understood differently by different people. We use the word gospel. And to us, We're speaking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins and according to the scriptures. We're thinking of the biblical definition of what the gospel is. And they hear that word and they're thinking of something totally different. They're thinking maybe of gospel music. Or they're thinking of church. They think of stained glass. They think of something else. And they're nodding their heads in agreement about the gospel But what they're nodding their heads in agreement to is different than what you're thinking. We use the word, you need to be born again. And they say, amen. Except they have a totally different idea of what it means to be born again. They're thinking of something altogether different than the biblical definition. We speak about God and they say, I love God. I believe in God. Except the God they believe in is totally different from the God of the Bible. We speak about Jesus and they say, I love Jesus. Which is exactly why I think that people shouldn't be so judgmental. Hold on. You got the wrong Jesus. You're believing in something that's altogether different than the Bible. You see what I'm saying? We speak words to people assuming that they understand them. They sometimes nod their head in agreement with us. And we think, man, they're following along. They're they're understanding the message. They they get it. I, I see what's happening. But actually what's happening underneath is that they are confused. 
confused. Now, it can be helpful for you and I to understand the other person's worldview in order to try and clear up this confusion. I'm not suggesting, by the way, that Paul and Barnabas did anything wrong in this passage. I'm merely pointing out that if this could happen to two of the greatest preachers in Christian history, you could assume that it might happen to us as well. That as we're preaching the gospel, rather than people getting clarity and coming to the knowledge of the truth, it's possible that some people might be confused. And that would be because they're looking at things through a certain lens. In this case, these people are looking through the lens of the Greek gods and goddesses. They're interpreting the world through the mythology that they've heard since they were kids. And so when they see this man get up and start walking, they assume that this is the power of the gods. They're not speaking about the creator God, the God of the Bible, the God who has revealed himself in the scriptures. They're not speaking about Jehovah. They're talking about a totally different kind of worship. And they got very excited because of what they had seen. But boy, they got it all mixed up. Now, I also want to point out to you that the assumptions that people have can be very strong and convincing in their mind. So even though someone is confused, they could be very passionate about their confusion. Oh, this is so difficult to deal with. This is so hard to convince people when they are very convinced that something is so, it's very difficult to prove to them that it is not so. Despite our best efforts to communicate the truth, we find that some people interpret the message wrongly because of their assumptions And they refuse to be shaken from their assumptions. Those are the things that they hold to. So we see, by the way, how passionate were these people based on their confusion and their assumptions. Well, they were so passionate that they were ready to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. They're ready to have a worship service. They're going to call them in and everybody's going to bow down and they're going to put on a feast in their honor and put... Uh, wreaths, garlands around them. They're going to they're gonna have a big party and, and Paul and Barnabas are going to be right at the center of it. Wow, what a mess. I, I mean, if I'm a, as a gospel preacher, I'm thinking, how do I get out of this? This is a big mess. What am I going to do about this? How am I going to be delivered from this confusing state? So notice there's power in God's truth. We know that from the scriptures. But there is also much confusion about the source of power. And many people are confused about what it is exactly that they believe. They're confused. Here's what happens to so many people. They take some biblical facts. They know some biblical truth. And they take in a heaping helping of worldly philosophy. A little bit of Eastern mysticism. uh, Some things that they heard when they were a kid a little bit of things from science class, and they put it in this big bowl, and they mix it all up, and they say, this is what I believe. And Americans are professionals at this. Americans in particular are professionals at coming up with their own system of belief, their own personal flavor of worshiping God. That's why people say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And what they mean by that is, I haven't really found anything that suited my fancy for religion, so I came up with my own blend. I got my own little way of doing it. 
And as long as I'm sincere, I'm sure that God will accept it. And of course, the doctrine of relativism tells them, as long as you believe it strongly and sincerely, it's right for you and there's no problem. And so lots of people are like that. And then when you try to confront them with biblical truth, boy, they don't like that very much. But we see a third thought here this morning. Not only is there power in God's truth, not only is there much confusion about the source of power, but third of all, it is imperative that confusion would be cleared up with the truth. You say, well, what's the big deal? You know, if somebody's confused, let them be confused. Well, you know, if somebody is confused about something that's not that important, you you might be able to get away with that. But what we are talking about here are matters that pertain to eternity. This is literally life and death. Eternal life and death. And Paul and Barnabas, when they understood what was happening, notice their response in verse 14. They rent their clothes. They ran in among the people crying out. I mean, they were really, really passionate about making sure that these people understood. Of course, part of this was they they really, really didn't want anybody bowing down and worshiping them because they knew we're not gods. I'm not Mercury. He's not Jupiter. I I don't know what you people are thinking or how you're assuming, but that's not us. Hold on. Stop. We need to help you understand some things. You and I need to be passionate about helping people find clarity in their confusion. People are confused all around us. They have reason to be confused. There are all kinds of voices out there that are saying, here's the truth, believe what I say. Oh, by the way, give an offering whenever you believe it. Come along. Hey, listen, I've got the right way of looking at it. And they've got all these things. And they're like, who do I believe? Who do I trust? I don't know. No wonder people are confused. The average person that I talk to about spiritual things is confused because they've had a multitude of religious teachers in their background from all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different worldviews, and they've got this mishmash of ideas that's all mixed up together. That was like the first guy that we talked to yesterday. He had all of these ideas. You say, how could a guy say one thing and then something that's the complete opposite of it, and yet it all made sense in his head? Because he was confused. And so we have to be persistent and passionate about trying to clear up confusion with the truth. The reason that people are confused is not because the gospel is confusing. It's not because God's truth is hard to understand. The reason that people are confused is because the enemy is blinding their minds. And only the truth of God is powerful enough to clear this confusion. You and I will find that we must be persistent in bringing people back to the truth so that they can reckon with it. You just have to keep bringing people back to, well, this is the truth. How how does that jive with this other thing that you're saying? This is the truth. And, And it's helpful to say, thus saith the Lord. This is what the Bible says. Look, this is the truth of what God says. 
And people, people will say all kinds of nonsense that they're passionate about and they're confused about. And they'll say, well, I think this thing about God or that thing about Jesus. And if you have the opportunity, you can say to them, well, but how do you reconcile that with what the Bible says? Because the truth is what clears people's confusion. If at all possible, don't just allow people to go on with their wrong assumptions. Now, you can't always correct people's thinking. You're not always going to be able to help them come to the knowledge of the truth because some people are are doggedly persistent in holding on to the thing that they want to believe. But we also need to have faith to understand that God is able to clear people's confusion up with his truth. Now, you'll notice in our our text in verses 14 through 18, the way that Barnabas and Paul dealt with this and the way that they presented the truth. Just a couple things I want to point out to you which are really helpful. In verse 15, as they ran into the people in the midst of the people, they're crying out, Sirs, why do ye these things? Notice the first thing that they said. We also are men of like passions with you. Here's what they said. We are not gods. Please do not worship us. We have the same frailties that you do. We're no different than you are. We don't want you to worship us. There is a danger in men worshiping the messenger. And sometimes if you're the messenger, you may find that to be attractive in a fleshly way. You, You may think, oh, well, I guess I am sent from God. I I guess after all, I am very important because I've got this. No, no, don't accept that kind of worship. Don't don't accept that kind of adulation. All you are is is one beggar telling another beggar where you found bread. Realistically, all you are is a sinner who has found forgiveness. And you're communicating to other sinners who need forgiveness. You can't forgive. You know, sometimes people, because they they find out I'm a preacher, a pastor, then they do things like they call me father. I'm not your father. I'm father to a couple people down here, right? But other than that, not your father. Okay, can you forgive my sins? Can you save me? No, I can't. I'm a man. That's not in my capacity. Now, listen, I can point you to the one who can save I can, I can help you from the scripture to know how you can be reconciled to God, but I cannot save you. I don't have that ability or that power. I'm a man of like passion. So we need to be forthright about this. We're not trying to get men's adulation or their praise. We want to communicate to men that it is God who should be worshipped. We want to turn our, the attention of the people who are listening from me as the messenger to the one who has sent the message the creator God. And that's exactly what Paul did. He called these people to repent in verse 15. He says, we're we're preaching unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God. What vanities is he referring to? He's referring to their worship. Now, most people do not like to think that the religious exercises that they're involved in are vanities. Vanity means it's empty, it's worthless, it has no value. They don't like to think that the things they're doing are actually not contributing to them being right with God. That somehow they're, they're not being helped by those things at all. But the truth is that much of what people call religion 
is nothing more than empty works. It's nothing more than men trying to earn God's favor through their own goodness or their own works that they're trying to do. And God says the worship systems of men are vanity. They're empty. They're worthless. They have no eternal value. And part of repentance is turning not only from your sins, but also turning from your own efforts to make yourself right with God. To stop trying to rely upon your worship, your, your, your system, the things that you're doing, the offerings you're giving, your baptism, your church membership, your good works. None of those things are going to make you right with God. Amen. And the apostles are calling out to these people, turn from these vanities. Go away from this false religion. Go away from this, this worship that has captivated your thought and think about the truth. And what is the truth? Well, the truth is, and he goes on, you're turning unto the living God. So he's highlighting the character of the living God. And the first thing I want to point out to you is he's the living God. He's alive. To many people, God is nothing more than the figment of the imagination. He's nothing more than a crutch for people who need some assistance. If you need that, then you go ahead. I don't really need that right now. Maybe one day I will, and then I'll, then I'll pick up a crutch. That's how people think about God. That's not the God of the Bible. He's the living God. He's the omnipotent God. He's, he's a powerful God. He's living. He's the creator. That means when he speaks about the creator, he made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. Everything around you, he made it. He made you. He made this world that you live in. He made all the things that are in the world. He is the one who owns them all because he's the one who made them all. He's the powerful God. So he's drawing attention from, listen, don't look at us. Don't worship us. We're just men. Worship God. He's alive. He's the creator. But then notice this in verse 15. I'm sorry, verse 16. Who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. And... The emphasis there in verse 16, he's a long-suffering God, and, and he gives people space. What are their own ways that he's referring to? It's referring to their own religious exercises, their own worship, the things that they've devised in their imaginations, the things that are, that are driving these people's motivation to worship Paul and Barnabas. He says God has allowed that. He, he's, he's suffered you to walk in your own ways. And if you look back in your own life, can't you see how God was patient with you? How, where you were and how God brought you to a place of understanding the truth. And, and that's how he is. The Bible says in the book of Romans that it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. He's patient with men. He's long-suffering. And, and he could, he, he even should, we could say, just strike men down when they worship the, fa- the false god, the wrong thing. Just get rid of them. They're done. Okay, they're worshiping the wrong thing. I'm done with them. But that's not God. He's patient. And he's long-suffering, and he gives men time to work through their confusion and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then not only that, even though he suffered all nations to walk in their own ways, verse 17, nevertheless, he left not himself without witness. That means he didn't leave people without any understanding of who he was. What is this witness? In that he did good. You have good in your life, don't you? 
I like to point this out to people. You have good in your life, don't you? You have things that are, that are good. Like you, 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 there's things you enjoy in your life. There's, you, have, you have health and, and there's good things to eat. And, and he talks about some of the particular things that God did. He gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons. He fills our hearts with food and gladness. All these are the good things that God has done. But why has he done those things? Because he's revealing to us that he's a good God. He's revealing to us that he's a God who ought to be worshipped. He's put his fingerprints on creation all around us. Everywhere we look, we see the evidence of his being. People say to me, oh, I don't believe in God. Why ever not? What exactly do you believe in? Do you believe you made all this? Do you believe that you sustain all this? You believe that somehow you keep all your body systems working? I, I don't understand. I don't believe in God. Then how did all this happen? Where did it come from? Where did you come from? Why are you here? You're going to have a hard time finding answers to those questions that make any rational sense if you say, I don't believe in God. God left his fingerprints everywhere so that we would, be, so that we would come to the conclusion, all of these vain things that I'm worshiping, all of these vain things that I'm doing are less than God. I need to find out who this God is. I need to worship him in spirit and in truth. So they highlighted the character of the living God. And and thankfully, in verse 18, with these sayings, scarce restrained they the people that they had not done sacrifice unto them. Shoo! And Paul and Barnabas walk away from this one. Wow, that was close. Wow, that's an experience. Can you imagine coming back from outreach and telling a story like that? Guys, you won't believe what happened. Now, I want you to see in verse 18, though, we have to have moderate expectations. Because verse 18 doesn't say that all these people realized the truth and believed on Jesus Christ and came to, you know, came to a place of repentance and began to worship the true God. It doesn't say that. It says they scarce restrained them from worshiping them. So even though the truth of God is powerful, and even though the truth of God can certainly change people's lives, we understand that there are people, no matter what you say to them, they will stubbornly hold on to their assumptions. They will stubbornly hold on to their worldview. Even though it doesn't make any sense in the face of reality, they've decided, I'm going to believe this. So, now, it's not all negative. Verse 18, in fact, as I was studying this message, I thought, well, Lord, it would have been good if in verse 18 you had said something like, but a bunch of people got saved. That would have made us feel a lot better, wouldn't it? So, I do want to point out, a bunch of people got saved. But God doesn't necessarily say that in verse 18. He leaves us instead with the tension of the spiritual confusion. That's because spiritual confusion is real. Spiritual confusion is common, and some of you are discouraged about ministering with the gospel because you say, every time I go out to witness to somebody... I, I have no idea what people are talking about. I start talking to them and they come out with this stuff and I'm like, where did you get that? And I don't know what to say. And they're confused and I'm confused. So I give up. 
Because I just think, you know, that people should just get saved when I preach the gospel because the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So I think God showed us this so that we could be comforted to realize that even when we preach the gospel, even when we are clear in our declaration of the truth, even if we are like Paul and Barnabas, some of the greatest preachers who've ever walked the face of the earth, it's possible that people will still walk away confused because our enemy has significant influence in their lives. Now, I want to point out to you that people did get saved. And even though it doesn't tell us how many or exactly what happened, and we'll, we'll look next week at, the, at the, the next thing that took place in verse 19 and following, but we know that a church was established in Lystra. Okay, so we know that people got saved... Actually, there's a young man who is from Derby and Lystra who's going to become very important in the New Testament and in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Next time Paul comes back here, he's going to meet up with this young man, and then this young man, whose name is Timotheus, is going to begin traveling with him. So we know that some good things happen. We know that in the midst of this atmosphere of spiritual confusion, some people got it. They understood the message. They believed on Jesus Christ. Their lives were changed. The church was established. The work of God went forward. But I think it's important for us to moderate our expectations. And this is why I'm going to say this. Because I'm afraid that some folks have this idea. If I were just as well-versed as Pastor Roland is in the Bible, then I could go on evangelism... And no one would be confused. People would get saved. And it would be clear in people's minds. And they wouldn't be able to present any arguments against what I have to say. But since I'm not where he's at, I can't be involved in that. And that is completely false. So one thing that I want to assure you of is that all the time when I am evangelizing, I meet confused people. And there are many times. Yesterday is, is a good example there are many times I walk away from an interaction with someone, having done my very best, I trust through the power of the Holy Spirit to press home the claims of Christ and point people towards the truth, and I just walk away from the interaction thinking, well, I don't think that went too good. I think they're really confused. I was hoping they wouldn't be confused when I left, but it seems like they're still confused. Are you all understanding what I'm saying? So you might be discouraged and think, well, I'm just not good enough. I, I just think that I can't do this well enough. Listen, you walk in the Spirit, you go with the gospel, you trust God with the results. Moderate your expectations to understand that no matter how well-versed you are, how filled with the Spirit you are, how powerful of a speaker you are, there are going to be times when there are still going to be people confused. Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We're wrestling against principalities and powers. We're wrestling against spiritual wickedness in high places. You say, why is there so much confusion? Because we have an enemy who sows confusion. The very first time that I went with our group to Harlem to do outreach... I went up on the top side of the park where I was yesterday, and our very first conversation was with a man who said to me that he was a shaman. 
he came to that place overlooking the city of Harlem, that area of the city where he could look out over and he would pray prayers. Now, he thought that he was somehow connected to God, but he was so confused. And I'm telling you, he was full of demons. And what he was doing up there on that high place was he was calling out to the spirits to come and bind people in that city. Now you say, what are we up against? We're up against spiritual wickedness in high places. We're up against a spirit of deception that blinds men's minds and steers them away from the truth. This is why we must rely on the Spirit of God. This is why we must be persistent. This is why we must be passionate about the truth. This is why we must define our terms. This is why we must speak the Word of God because the Word of God is more powerful than man's arguments. This is why we must depend upon the power of God and this is why we must leave the results with God himself for the work that only he can do in people's lives. Now, I've said all this this morning and I'm just about finished understanding that it's possible there's some who are confused this morning right in this audience. It's possible, probable, that many of you have friends and loved ones and neighbors who are terribly confused about the truth, who when you talk to them, talk like they love Jesus, but at the same time, you're scratching your head saying, this doesn't seem to add up. There's some things that are strange here about what they say they believe. They very well could be spiritually confused. And you say, what is the remedy to that? The remedy is the declaration of the truth. Consistently declare the truth and trust God with the results. If you find yourself confused this morning and you recognize I've got a mishmash of ideas, I've got all these things that I've pulled in and I'm just not quite that certain that I'm believing the truth, what is the solution for you? Seek out the book of the Lord and read. Find the word of God and seek out the answers for yourself in God's word. Because this is the word of truth. Spiritual confusion is a reality. It's not going away. It's the state in which we minister. It's it's reasonable to expect that most of what we will do is try to clear up spiritual confusion. If you found yourself discouraged in this work, encourage your heart. It's not a new thing. And God wants us to be diligent to help people who are confused and hopefully clear the blinders from some people's eyes so that they can come to the knowledge of the truth.